as already has been flagged. The reading tonight is from Joshua, Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, starting at verse 1. So starting Joshua 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came, into, came to the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent Rahab, sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And when you did, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Praise be. Thanks, Tim. Be helpful to keep a Bible open at Joshua chapter 2 if you've got one in front of you. If not, don't worry. I'll read bits to you. I've got a question for you tonight as we begin. Do you find it hard to believe that God will keep his promises to you. Really believe that he'll do it. Remember a friend of mine once saying to me, Tim, I'd be more interested in Christianity if Christians lived as Christians. And I must have had a quizzical look on my face because he explained more. He said, you say that you believe that God will give you heaven and heaven will go on forever and ever and ever. 
And yet the Christians I know, they pretty much live the same as those who don't believe in heaven. They just keep accumulating more and more stuff and having more and more experiences, doing everything in their power to make heaven here on earth. And as I listened to him, I thought, yeah, I think you're probably right. It hit home to me. I think that's what I'm like. And so it raised that question for me that I'm asking you. Do you really believe the promises of God? Do you find it hard to believe them? I suspect one of the reasons we find it hard to believe God's promises is that our general experience of promises is not so good. Politicians promise us heaven every election and even in between, but they very rarely deliver much, do they? Uh, advertisements, whether it's on uh, Facebook or TV, wherever you see them, they, they always promise the world, but it doesn't really work out, does it? Having that sort of car doesn't make life suddenly on top of the world. Even our friends let us down, and so we're reluctant to put all our weight, all our hope in promises, because just in case, just in case God doesn't come through, let's have a foot in both camps. I remember once, Rosemary's my wife, um, and we often sort of run out of milk halfway through the week. We never seem to buy enough. And we'd run out of milk and we are going home separately. And Rosemary said, I'll buy some milk on the way home. And as I was going home, I thought, I wonder whether she will. So I went and bought some milk on the way home. Guess what happened when I got home? She said, Tim, I promised I'd get it. Didn't you believe me? And she was right. I'd done it just in case. Foot in both camps. Well, the book of Joshua is about the promises of God and the difference they make in our lives. I wasn't here last week, but I I gather that you looked at Joshua chapter 1. And in Joshua chapter 1, God says to Joshua, the land I promised to give the people of Israel, I'm going to give them now. Now's the time. And you will lead the people in to take this land. I'll be with you. And wherever you go, you'll succeed. Wherever you go, I'll give you that city, that, that part of the land, till you have the whole land. And he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Be a man. But I hope you saw in Joshua 1, if you're here, that the order of that. God doesn't say, listen, Joshua, if, if you man up enough, if you show enough courage, then I'll give you the land. It's the opposite. He says, Joshua, I'll, I will give you the land. That's my promise. Therefore, be courageous. Courage comes because we believe the promises of God. The task is to take the land. And in Joshua chapter 2, they begin taking the land. They begin by sending two spies to go and look at Jericho, the, the key strategic city on the other side of the Jordan River in the land proper. But you might ask, why do they need spies? And what do spies bring? Well, military data normally. How many soldiers have they got? How thick are the walls? What cannons have they got? But God is giving them the land. Why do they need spies? If you know the story of the people of Israel, you know that there was a time before this where they used spies. The first time they came to the edge of the promised land, 40 years before this incident, And they sent spies into the the land of of Palestine, the land God had promised. And it was one of the worst stories in Israel's history. 
Because they came back and said, God was right. This is a fantastic land. Flow with milk and honey. But God's wrong. There's giants in the land. They're scary. We can never take this land. They wouldn't trust the promises of God. And now they're doing it again. But it's actually worse than that. In verse 1, where do they send the spies from? Well, it's an unfortunately named place called Shittim, which any year eight boy will stumble over and probably giggle and not get over. It's sort of like Inaloo, isn't it? It's one of those sort of names that just stick in your mind. They spent spies from Shittim. But for Israel, it had other connotations. Because Shittim was the place of almost the darkest day in the history of Israel. They'd got across the Red Sea, they'd wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, they were on the edge of the promised land, and then the men of Israel played the harlot, that's actually the language, with the Moabite women. Moabites thought a way to sort of win this war is send all our women in, distract them with sex, and and the Israelite men were distracted. And more than 25,000 died in the hands of God in one day. It was a very, very dark day for Israel. And now they send spies from Shittim into Jericho, the promised land. And where do they go? Into the house of a prostitute, into the house of a sex worker, a harlot. What are they doing there, you might ask? Well, your guess is as good as mine, and it's probably right. The commentaries go through all sorts of linguistic gymnastics to try and say she wasn't really a prostitute. She was Maybe it was just an inn and she happened to be one of the the maids who cleaned the beds. Now, it's pretty obvious what the writer's saying. She was a pagan prostitute and that's where these two spies, these two people of God, end up. It's starting to show marked similarities with other spy stories, isn't it? Like James Bond or... Uh, killing Eve or some of those sort of spy stories. And it gets worse because they're detected. Somebody finds out that these spies from Israel have infiltrated Jericho and they send the secret police round. There's rumours that they're at Rahab's house. They knock on the door and say, give us the spies. Sorry, it's not quite like that. Verse 2, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to, uh, to, to Rahab saying, bring out the men who've come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. It's a tense moment. Our heroes or anti-heroes look like they're about to be caught. Surely she's going to hand them over, isn't she? And they deserve it, you're thinking. Uh, but this writer is a good storyteller. He, 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 he takes you, he strings you along by holding back a piece of information that he then tells us in verse four. Before the people came knocking on the door, she had hidden them on the roof. And so she said, true, I, the men did come to me, but I don't know where they are, where they're from. She lies through her teeth. And then she says, when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. They left here. I, I don't know where they are. You better go and look for them because they're not here. They're out there somewhere. And they believe her and they race off and comb the area around Jericho on this wild goose chase. But it raises a very significant question. 
Why did Rahab lie through her teeth, risk her neck for these foreigners? I mean, is she just another gullible woman who can't resist the charms of charming spies? Is this really like a James Bond story? But remember, what she's doing is treason. She's betraying her family, her country, her city. She's abetting the enemy. It's a capital offence. If she's found, she will lose her head and everything else. Why is she doing it? But there's a second question. How on earth will the spies ever escape? They're trapped in the city. The gates are locked. Uh, They're being watched. The countryside around is being combed by uh, the, the, the military. But what are they going to do? Commandeer some turbocharged chariot and you have the obligatory car race and keep... Well, no, the, the writer again keeps us in suspense because the, the question he wants us to look at the answer for is the question, why? Why did she hide the spies? And the core of the story in verses 8 to 14 is her explanation of why she did it, why this pagan prostitute saved the, the Israelite spies. And the answer, I suspect, is as surprising to us as it must have been to those spies. She says in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know it. I'm confident of it. I'm sure that God is going to keep his promise and give you this land of Canaan, including Jericho. Now, can you imagine the surprise on the spies' faces when they hear that, especially if they came for what I suspect they came for? She knows, she's convinced, she's absolutely sure that God has given this land to Israel. Israel are having trouble believing that. Joshua is having trouble believing that, but she believes it. She knows God has promised to give the land to Israel and she believes the promises of God. And that knowledge has created fear. Verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. She knows and she's petrified. Because if God is doing something, it's terrifying to be on the wrong side of God and his actions. She's afraid. All the people are afraid. But how does she know? And did she have some special experience sometime? Maybe she had a personal sign from God one night in her dreams. Or maybe she worked it all out by herself. She just thought, well, I, I, I think God might be the sort of God who gives our land to these foreigners. Was she at a worship service where God's power was palpable? No. She says, verse 10, because we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. We heard what God had already done in keeping his promises. He rescued, 40 years before, he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and the whole world knew about that. The Egyptian army uh, humbled to nothing. The Red Sea crossing. That left them all drowned on the shore. God had given them stunning victories over Egypt, the superpower of the day, and even over uh, Og and Sihon on the other side of the Jordan River. They'd heard about that. That is, you could say she'd heard God's gospel at that stage of fulfilment. 
And so she says, as soon as we heard it, verse 11, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Because of what God had done and the report of that, she now knows who the true and living God is. It's not, it's not the, the idols that they worship. It's not the gods they've made up for their family. It's the God of Israel. How will our friends, my friends, yours, come to believe in the true and living God? I take it's usually the same way, isn't it? By hearing what God has done in keeping his promises. Hearing about the Lord Jesus coming at the promise of God, his father, his death on a cross for our sins and rising to life again, conquering evil and death and Satan. And his promise to return one day to bring a new creation, a new creation in which there's no pain and suffering, but just life. How will our friends know that? By hearing, probably from our lips, hearing what God has done already. That's why on campus we've been doing this uncover. Just read for yourself, uncover for yourself what God has done. But it's not just that she's heard. It's what she does with what she's heard and what she's believed that is significant. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I've dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you'll save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So she doesn't simply tremble in fear. Everyone in Jericho is doing that. Her fear leads to action, taking the spies and hiding them, saving them. See, when you're afraid, there's a few different reactions you can have to fear, isn't there? Most of you will know it. You've played sport, have you? If you ever turn up to a sporting game, whether it's you know singles tennis against someone else, and or my say, my case was normally playing soccer, and when you get to the game, you realise that your opposition is just going to smash you. You know, they're three times your size. They've won every game this year, and you're suddenly facing this, this match, this this game that you cannot possibly win, and you're afraid. What do you do with your fear? Well, some people just dig in a bit more, don't they? We'll, we'll, we'll save our pride somehow. We'll at least play and, and maintain something. But there's another option. Change sides. Now, I know in sport that sounds like you shouldn't do it. That's, that, that's the worst thing you can do. But in real life, that is the best option, isn't it? Change sides. And that's what Rahab has done. She has changed sides. She's heard the gospel. She's heard the promises of God. She's come to believe it because God has acted. And now she changes sides. The rest of Jericho don't. They fear, they tremble, but they dig their heels in. They're never going to change. And what she says in verse 12 and 13 is extraordinary. Because at that moment, she holds all the cards in her hand. One word, they're arrested, they're killed, the whole ball game is over of their spying. Just one word. But she speaks as if they hold all the cards in their hands. Please, when you take the, the city, be merciful to me. I'll gather my parents and, and my family and please, please look after us. She throws herself on their mercy, which is really the mercy of God. She stakes her life and her future on God's promises. She knows a cataclysm is coming. 
It's inevitable. And so her house, her income, it'll all be irrelevant on that day. The only thing that will matter is which side she is on. Here is a pagan prostitute, a sex industry worker. But she's not so pagan anymore, is she? She not only knows that there is a God in heaven above and on earth beneath, she, she believes in that God and she's thrown herself on that God's mercy. She staked her future on him. That's why she hit the spies. That's why she took that remarkable, almost unbelievable action. And you've listened, haven't you? You've listened to her reason and that's what the writer wanted you to do. Because he didn't want to answer the question, how on earth will they escape, till you've heard why she did it. And then finally in verse 15, thanks Ian for stopping at verse 14. Finally in verse 15, having listened to her reason for hiding the spies, the writer gives us a very important piece of information that he's held back. Verse 15, she let them down by a rope through a window because her house was built into the city wall, so she lived in the wall. Aren't you glad he didn't give you that piece of information up front? Because then there would be no tension in the story. You'd know how they were going to escape and you would have just turned off and changed channels, wouldn't you? Uh, Rahab happened to live in the wall of Jericho. And so she makes arrangements with them to make sure that when Israel destroyed the city of Jericho, she and her mum and her dad and her brothers and sisters will be safe as they throw themselves onto the mercy of God. And the spies do escape and they eventually get back to Joshua and the people of Israel. And they report in. I wonder what military data they give. How thick are the walls? How heavily armed are the soldiers? Well, here's their report, verse 24. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. What do they report? They report that God's promise is true. The spies are now convinced that God will keep his promise. They've been convinced by these words and actions of a pagan prostitute. I presume it was enormous encouragement to the people of Israel, every last one of them, which is what they needed. Can you see now one of the reasons why this story is included in the history of Israel? You see, the history of Israel is not a story of Israel's heroic, courageous conquest. It's not a story of Israel being the greatest and everybody else melting in fear before them. No, it's a story of God's certain promise that when God says, I will do this, you can take it to the bank. He will keep his word. He will give them the land. That's one of the things that helps me have confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Because when we write our histories, what do we do? We always make us look good, don't we? If you've ever done any history of Australia, Gallipoli, 1915, is one of the, the, the key dates, isn't it? And they always write it up as if Australia had a crushing victory at Gallipoli. But we didn't. It was a very shameful flogging by the Turks. We got our tails whipped. 
But that's not how we tell our story because we always want to be the heroes. Our mateship and everything, that came together. That's who we really are at Gallipoli. But Israel tell their story as it really was. They're not the heroes. They're not the ones who stand tall. It's the promise of God that stands tall. That's what you can take to the bank. And even this Canaanite sex industry worker found the mercy of God. She sought it and she found it. Well, that's the story. Let's zoom out for a minute and just think about its implications. This story is part of a much longer story. 600 years before this, God made some very programmatic promises to a guy called Abraham. To Abraham, he revealed his sort of long-term blueprint of what he was going to do, a, 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 a blueprint that would lead to the blessing of all the peoples in the world. It was a plan that took 2,000 years to reach its fulfilment in the coming of the Lord Jesus, who died to bring forgiveness to any and every person on this planet, who rose again to begin a new creation that would replace this stuffed-up creation that we live in. He revealed his strategy as being, from you, Abram, I'm going to make a nation and I'm going to give them the land of Palestine. And so what we see in this story of Rahab is one small step on the way towards Jesus. And what are we meant to learn? I think two key things come out of this. The first is that God's promises bring fear. Certainly did for Rahab and, in fact, everyone in Jericho. If God has drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea because they enslaved Israel, if God has demolished the armies of Og and Sihon because they opposed God, he did it to keep his promises to free Israel and give them the land, then nothing can stop God keeping his promises. Nothing will stop God keeping his promises. He's a God who really is God. He acts and does. Nothing can stop him. And so if you're on the wrong side of God, it's a very scary place to be. And Rahab recognised that. And she's terrified. Let me ask you, do you think our message as Christians puts the fear of God into anybody? If I just say to people nothing more than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, why are we surprised when their response is, that's nice, I've got a wonderful plan for my life as well? And it goes no further. Now, God is loving and has a wonderful plan for your life, but the gospel, the true gospel, puts fear into people. Because God has promised to rid this world of evil and injustice of cheating and lying, of exploitation and revenge, of racism and sexism and corruption and treachery and greed and and lust. And he's already acted decisively and powerfully. His son has died for such evil. He's been raised to life conquering evil and death and fixed today when he will judge the living and the dead by that man, Jesus. And that is terrifying news if you know that you've cheated and lied and taken revenge and exploited others for money or status or sex. I mix with students at UWA day in and day out during semester, and most of them are nice, polite people. But they've all done those things. We've all done those things. 
In fact, you could say that the core of our problem as humanity is no fear of God. And so often, unlike Rahab, we live as if God hasn't acted, as if God won't act, as if God is nothing more than a cuddly kitten. Uh, The gospel, God's promises, bring fear. But God's promises also bring faith. At least they did for Rahab. It didn't for most of the people in Jericho, but they did for Rahab. She believed God's promises. And so she throws herself on the mercy of God. And what's the outcome? Well, let me read to you from chapter 6. Jericho falls. They burnt the whole city with fire. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in, she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And when Jericho fell, one family was spared. Who was it? Was it the king? Was it the citizen of the year? Was it Miss Charity Queen? Was it the professor at the university? No, it was Rahab. You say Rahab? The prostitute? She was spared? Yes. Because the only possibility of escaping the judgment of God is seeking God's mercy. And that's what she did. And she was spared. And it's not just a possibility. It's not just that you might get mercy. In Romans chapter 10, this is how the Apostle Paul puts it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be, or you've got a good chance, but you will be saved. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus, will be saved. God's promises bring faith. And faith results in salvation. It brings fear and it brings faith. Some of you might be familiar with that song, Amazing Grace. And John Newton, I think, captured that from his own experience in, in verse 2. That it starts like this. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. That's Rahab's experience, isn't it? Grace taught her to fear, and grace relieved her fear. Well, Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament. She's part of the family genealogy of Jesus. That is, this pagan prostitute turns out to be the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus himself. You think, what, a a prostitute in in the family line of Jesus and a foreigner? Yes, because part of God's chosen line to save you and me is Rahab. It, It shows us the kindness of God, kindness to Rahab, And to us, he didn't just rescue her, but gave her a place in his kingdom work. He heaped honour on her. But the other place that's mentioned is in James chapter 2 that was read for us tonight. Josh read it. Where we see that Rahab's faith led to action. It led her to do something, to hide the spies. It wasn't simply intellectual. So you can have a very intellectual faith. I can tick the box, Jesus has died to deal with sin. Tick the box, Jesus will return to eradicate sin and destroy and rebuild this world. But that's not real faith. 
You know faith is real when it's shown by actions. See, the rest of Jericho believed that. They could tick the boxes. Yes, God is going to destroy Jericho. Yes, I've seen what God has done and it's going to happen to us. But they didn't change sides. They just trembled like the demons do before God. A faith involves changing loyalty. And Rahab did that. She staked her life and her future on God to keep his promises. My friend who made that observation that most Christians live as if God won't keep his promises, I think was onto something. Of course, as I look at my own life, there's something about me that he's describing. And so the question I have for you tonight and the question I ask myself is, what would your life look like if you were confident that God is going to keep his promises? If you're really confident, if you're willing to go out on a limb and stake everything in your life, that God would keep his promises. Confident that God would rid this world of all forms of evil, that this world in its current form has a use by date. It has no future really, because Jesus will return as judge to create a whole new world. And on that day, all our worldly achievements will lose their currency. Who cares how much money I'll have in the bank? Who cares how many degrees I've got on the wall? Who cares uh, whether marriage has been good or bad? I hope it has been good, but who cares in the end if God will keep his promises? Rahab said, I believe. And so I did something. I believe that God will keep his promises. Will you believe Not just tick the box, yes, I know it's true, but really believe. Live as if the promises of God are words that you can stake your life on, stake your behaviour on, change your life because of, because they're the words of the true and living God who has always kept his word and will do it again. Amen.